0: Welcome to the Girl Podcast, this is Jerry Pitney. Today I'm joined by Jimmy Gasway, who is our state representative. Jimmy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, great to be with you. I love your shirt, by the way. (laughs) Great great color. I appreciate the memo so that we can coordinate. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I thought we looked really good out there. (laughs) If you're not Uh, following us on Facebook, check the Facebook post to see why. (laughs) So, um, I've known you for a while. We went to the same school. What, What were you, class of what? Class of 99. Okay, so yeah, two years older than me. Was that Ridgecrest or Paragould? I think it was Paragould when I graduated, but it was Ridgecrest for a portion of the time that I was there. Okay. I couldn't remember if you were the Paragould Ram or Ridgecrest Ram. So I've known you just through school a little bit, uh, and then just obviously because of your profession, you're in the public, and our lives have crossed here and there because we live in a— fairly small town and so um but there's also a lot that I still don't know kind of about you know how you got into the profession that you're in and so that's the first question I want to know is you know we're going to talk about the perform or the Protect Arkansas act here in just a little bit which is uh an incredible I know that you put a ton of time into this bill and it's going to help our state in, in, in a lot of ways certainly want to get there but before I do that like how did you get to where you are right now? Is this something that you knew when you were a kid that you wanted to do, high school, junior, high, or not until you got to college? Like, how did you get here?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I guess it's been a bit of an interesting road. Um, you know, I always had an interest in politics. Um, I guess really from the time I was a kid, I was, I was somewhat interested in politics. I, you know, I remember uh, my mom she was, I mean, she's been a Republican forever. Like she was a Republican when it wasn't cool to be a Republican, (laughs) but she was a Republican. And so I know this had to be, you know, I had to be pretty young because uh, Reagan was president had been in the eighties, but you know, my mom was, was uh, kind of a big anti-abortion proponent and had apparently written a letter to Ronald Reagan uh, encouraging him to take some action uh, on the issue of abortion And I remember that she got a letter back. Wow, from the White House. Yeah, which I know now was actually, you know, probably some college intern in the mailroom who wrote who wrote it and sent it back. But I thought it was really the president who wrote her back. (laughs) And so, you know, that was just an experience from when I was young that I think it kind of always stuck with me. They're like, "Wow, the president wrote my mom back," Mm. which really, really wasn't the case. But I wasn't young; I was wasn't old enough to know any better. And uh, you know, from that point, I was just kind of. Uh, I guess somewhat fascinated with politics. I remember I I checked out a book from the library uh, on the presidency when George H.W. Bush was president because he was on the cover of it, and I never took it back. I think we still have that book at the house somewhere. (laughs) That's going to be one heck of a late (laughs) fee. Yeah. (laughs) It's probably a crime or something. But but, uh, I think we still have that book somewhere. But I remember having that as a kid, and then I think, you know, as I got older – you know, my interests were in history and, you know, the social studies and uh, English, literature, reading. Like, those were just where my interests were. It's, they were definitely my strong suits. Not that I didn't like math and science. I was always a, a good student. But, you know, my strengths and my interests were really in history and the social studies and things like that and music. And, uh, you know, you may remember when I was in high school, I was, a, I was in band, I was a trumpet player, and my life kind of revolved around. At that point, uh, playing the trumpet. And uh, you still playing? You know, I'm not. And it, it's really sad. Uh, I played all through college. And I was in at ASU, I played in you know basically every ensemble that they had. I, I was did in, not know that. Oh, yeah. I was in the marching band and the wind wow, ensemble wow, and the jazz band and the orchestra. If they had an ensemble, I played
0: in it. Wow. That's excellent. And uh, are you the only uh, musical person in your family, or you kind of come from a line of. Of, of musicians well you know it's interesting uh
1: you know my sister uh who passed away she was a all-state french horn player mm. my brother uh, was an all-state percussionist and i was all-state trumpet but so we kind of all got the music gene i guess but neither one of my parents were musicians so it's mm. kind of an interesting deal but uh so you know i guess you know kind of going back to the original question my interests were always in uh you know history you know and uh Social studies and things of that nature, uh, literature, and then music. And when I got to college, I was an undecided major for a while. I took a bunch of music classes. I probably had enough credits to basically have a minor in music. And I was Did really you
0: think at that point, she might be a band director. Well,
1: <laughs> I, I kind of knew I didn't want to do that. I, I didn't want to be a band director, but I thought, you know, maybe I wanted to teach trumpet in college yep. or be uh, or try to be a professional player, which is a lot more difficult than what people realize because oh, sure. there's a lot of really talented trumpet players all over mm-hmm. um and musicians generally uh so that that was a difficult path but one that i was looking at but mm-hmm. uh i guess my second year of college i kind of decided on you know i think this is really where my interests lie and so I, I was a political science major graduated from asu and then law school was kind of the natural step from there and then uh, you know i've been out and practicing law
0: since 2006 so yeah, so you were, and I didn't know this, so I, was doing, I was reading on you uh, right before you came in, you were a deputy prosecuting attorney for how long?
1: Uh, Almost nine years. I, I started practicing law in 06, and I knew I'd always, I knew I wanted to be a prosecutor. Like, even when I was in law school, you know, you have different people that are looking at different routes. Some people want to be civil litigators. Some people want to be defense lawyers. Some people want to do, you know, some people want to do real estate law. Some people, uh. You know, which would just bore me to tears oh, if I had to do sure. that all
0: day, every day. But yeah, prosecution seems like what's what I would want to do. But yeah. I'm curious, like for you, what was it that, that drew you there?
1: Well, I think it was a couple of things. One, you, as a prosecutor, you really get the opportunity to be in the courtroom. Whereas, mm-hmm. I, you know, I knew just sitting behind a desk and doing deeds or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, examining real estate titles or, uh, you know, poring over an insurance policy that was not really what I wanted to do. I'd rather be in the courtroom. I wanted to be kind of involved in the action. And so uh, there was that. And then the other thing about it, you know, but the difference between being a prosecutor and a defense lawyer, and I certainly see the value in being a defense lawyer today. I see it a lot more today than I did back then. I think I was, I think it was probably a little more black and white back then than it is now, but sure. I, I kind of saw being on the prosecution as kind of being able to wear the white hat, being able to, be on the side of truth, justice, in the American way. Mm-hmm. And, I, again, I don't see it as as black and white as that today. Defense lawyers have a uh, very important job, uh, very important role in the criminal justice system. And, uh, you know, it's not always as black and white as that. Uh, but for me back then, I that's just where I wanted to be. And so Brent Davis was the prosecutor in northeast Arkansas at the time. He was the elected prosecutor over the six county, which Sonia is today. Mm-hmm and uh, I'd contacted Brent, and I said, you know, if you ever have a position open, I would definitely be interested in it, and he said, well, I don't have anything right now, but you know, if something comes open, I'll let you know, and I'd been out of law school, I guess, about a little over a year, and uh, I was just sitting in my office one day here in Paragould on Court Street, Mm -hmm. and I was with Andy Fulkerson at the time. My phone rang, and it was Brent Davis. I mean, I uh, we didn't have caller ID at the office or anything. I just answered the phone. It was Brent Davis. And he said, hey, are you still interested in a prosecutor job? And I was like, yes. He said, well, be at my office at 2 o'clock and let's sit down and talk about it. So, you know, just is one of those things. Maybe it was the Lord or, you know, whatever Elijah. you want to – however you want to put it. But ultimately it worked out for me.
0: Yeah. You've worked on some obviously some pretty big cases. You've been involved with some murder trials and a um, first-degree, second-degree manslaughter. I mean – you know, rape cases. Is there any, uh, as you look back on that time, is there any certain case that really sticks out to you or jumps out to you or one that you're most proud of?
1: Yeah, you know, I had a lot of interesting cases during that period of time. Um, You know, there were um, the capital murder. I mean, I handled several capital murder cases, but the one in particular, of course, that that I'll never forget was the uh, State versus Jerry Lard that involved... Uh, the murder of a Truman police officer. I was the deputy prosecutor in Poinsett County at that time, and, of course, Truman is in Poinsett County, and uh, the police officer who was murdered in that case was a guy by the name of Jonathan Schmidt, who I knew personally had worked Mm -hmm. with, gone to court with him, and, you know, been a witness on a lot of cases that I had. And so I I had a personal relationship with Jonathan, and just a great guy. I mean, just couldn't have met a better guy. And he was murdered in Truman one night on a traffic stop and that case ultimately went to trial in Greene County because the defense had requested a uh, change of venue. They didn't feel like he could get a fair trial in Poinsett County. So, And Brent Davis, who used to be the elected prosecutor, actually was the judge on that case. Oh, wow. And so uh, Brent changed the venue from, or Judge Davis, I should say, changed the venue from mm-hmm. Poinsett County to Greene County. And so uh, we brought on some of the the prosecution team from Greene County, and it was me and David Bowling who were the deputy prosecutors in Poinsett County at the time. Scott Ellington was the elected prosecutor. And so we kind of had a prosecution team, but that was just a huge case. Uh, You know, it was a death penalty case that ultimately the jury jury handed down the death penalty in that case. And that is, you know, that's one of those things that, um, you know, it's very emotional, it's very emotionally taxing. Uh, that's a it's a very weighty thing and i look back on it and you know i was that was 2012 2013 time frame i was
0: 33 32 33 it's a lot to carry as a in the early 30s yeah
1: you know it's uh you know but those are the kind of experiences that that help shape you and form you and so sure. you know that definitely is probably And I didn't, I certainly didn't handle that case alone. Kimberly Dale was Mm -hmm. uh, very involved in that case. Andy Fulkerson, who was my law partner at the time, handled a lot of the expert witnesses in that case. Uh, You know, I took, I had some of the witnesses, um, you know, we really kind of divided up the duties on it, but just to be involved in a case of that magnitude, especially kind of that early in my career was a big thing. And then I handled, uh, you know, multiple other murder cases and rape cases and, uh, you know, tried a lot of jury trials during that period of time, which is a, you know, it's a it's a good experience because you're, one, you're active in the courtroom, but you're getting a sense of what the community feels like justice is. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you panel a jury, you're getting members of the community from, you know, all walks of life who come in and have to sit and hear the facts of a case and ultimately make a decision uh, whether a person is guilty or innocent and then affix the punishment uh, and what that should be. And so, you really get a, I don't know, there's just really a lot of kind of humanity
0: involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, is there ever, well, I got a couple questions. First off is the death penalty on this case. Why was that, why was the death penalty considered in that case? Is it because it was the murder of a law officer? Is that, or is it, because like, every, you know, like you hear it, like oh, that's just my own ignorance. Sometimes you hear murder cases, obviously death penalty is not involved. This one it was. What decides that?
1: Yeah. So the statute, uh, capital murder is the only, uh, Well, I will say maybe treason, I guess, if you're looking at the federal system too, but in the state system, capital murder is the only criminal offense for which the death penalty is an option. And cap, the capital murder statute sets out certain courses of conduct that would qualify for, uh, that would make the death penalty an option. And I seem to recall that, uh, you know, purposefully killing a law enforcement officer mm-hmm. in the line of duty is one of those courses of conduct mm-hmm. that qualifies as capital murder and that uh, would qualify for the death penalty. There are certain aggravating circumstances that have to be proven uh, before the death penalty is even an option. So, the, you know, there are, there are a lot of, not every murder or every, every uh, homicide case is eligible for the death penalty. It's only capital murder. It has to fall into a very specific set of circumstances Uh, in order to qualify, and then even then you have to prove certain aggravating circumstances beyond a reasonable doubt, and then you have to get a unanimous verdict from the jury. So, I mean, for people who think that, uh, you know, the death penalty is something that is easy, is a a verdict or a, a judgment that's easy to achieve, it's not. There's a lot of safeguards along the way. It has to qualify specifically under the statute. Then you have to have an aggravating circumstance, and then you have to have a unanimous jury that decides to do it. One person, can uh, can cause the
0: death penalty to not be
1: uh, sentenced. And then so, even
0: after their sentence, like it can be long, like years and years and years down the road, right before someone receives the death penalty.
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, and you hear a lot of people that are that are very critical of that. I. But the point is, is in our system, we want to make sure that uh, you're you're talking about the ultimate punishment. And sure. so, if someone someone receives the ultimate punishment, we want to make sure that there were no errors in the process, that they received all the due process, that they should be afforded, and that, uh, you know, that they had adequate representation and on and on. I mean, it, you know, we really build in uh, safeguards so that we're not just, um, you know, so that the death penalty is not being uh, sentenced in cases, or people aren't being sentenced to the death penalty in cases where they shouldn't be Mm -hmm. and i think that's very important i understand that it takes a while but it that's also important to ensure that absolutely man that you're safeguarding uh you know people's rights yeah
0: and i would think the people who get the most upset about that just my assumption are not the people who have to push the button you know or pull the trigger so to speak or whatever it's like they're the ones who's sitting back and they don't (laughs) think about the fact that these are real people That's right. You know, like it's somebody's son or somebody's daughter or somebody's husband or whatever, you know, or dad. And it's like, yeah, you want to make sure you got it right if you're going to pass down, like you said, the ultimate punishment.
1: No, that's absolutely right. You know, I can relate to you and experience. i never forget in that particular case when the case was over and the jury had uh, sentenced uh, Mr. Lard to the death penalty and the judge had confirmed that sentence. Um, the defendant had family members in the courtroom too, and I watched them as they cried, mm-hmm. and I saw the victim's family and the defendant's family hug one another. And you know, you have two people now. You have you have uh, obviously Jonathan Schmidt, who was murdered brutally, and I'm not uh, I'm not taking up for Jerry lard in any way. Sure, but his family, you know, that's. You're right. It's hard on everybody. I saw members of the jury cry. So, it, you know, it's a, it's just a very weighty thing. It's not something to be taken lightly. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot of interest all the way around. 100%. It seems like,
0: like you have a good balance of how you view it um, of, like, yeah, I'm here to make sure that justice is served. But, like, I don't know if we should ever be happy about the state of the fact mm-hmm. that we live in a world where murder takes place and then, like, you know, there are these major consequences in this case, the death penalty, that in order to write that, and I think that, yeah, I, I, I can see where you would, it's just that crazy juxtaposition between here's a family who's celebrating because justice has been served, and here's another family over here, you know, that's, like, deeply grieved because, one, they've got a family member who did this. Right. And now, like, he's going to pay for the death penalty. And so I'm I'm curious from this standpoint as a prosecuting attorney. And I've asked asked, uh, Sonia this when she came on from even the defense uh, side of things. Is there ever a time where you are being asked to prosecute someone and when you're in the middle of, you know, collecting your information and, and facts and evidence? Is there ever a time where you're like, I don't know if this person's guilty? And if so, like, what does a prosecuting attorney do in that situation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, of course that that's happened, and you know my position on it always was: if a person's not guilty, the prosecutor shouldn't pursue it. And um, you know now there are going to be cases where you know there there may be some questions, uh, but ultimately, if the proof is there and you believe very strongly that the proof indicates that the person's guilty, you're never you know not every crime is on videotape. Sure. Uh, and in, but in that particular the capital murder case that I'm talking about we had dash cam video there was no question about if it happened or how it happened yep um so we, it's
0: like at that case it's like even the defense attorneys not like hey look we're not trying to prove your innocence right at that yeah. point right I'm guessing that, they're just like what trying to get the best outcome possible for the fact that we know you murdered this guy yeah
1: that that's really that was the best they could do in that case I mean that what they were hoping to do was the defense strategy, I believe, was just to keep the jury from from handing down the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the question of guilt or innocence with the videos was not an issue, really. I mean, we had to go through that part of the trial because it's constitutionally required. But uh, but that was really never in question, I didn't think. Ultimately, it was the sentencing portion of the trial that where the defense really had their biggest part of the job. But to your question, yeah, you know, of course, there were cases that I came across where uh, you know, you had questions, and if I had if I had serious doubts about whether someone was guilty, or I believe that they were truly innocent, I'd dismiss the case, and that's what a prosecutor should do. And that's that's one of the distinctions between a prosecuting a prosecuting attorney, and an attorney in private practice. A prosecuting attorneys, uh, a prosecuting attorney's obligation and duty is to do justice. And if a person is not guilty, or if a person is innocent, and the facts so indicate. Your duty as a prosecutor to do justice in that case is to not pursue the charges, and
0: and that actually happens in the real world. No, it absolutely
1: that? happens. Yeah, I dismissed several cases because I ultimately believed uh, this person was innocent, or uh, you know that that the facts we just didn't have the evidence to prove the case.
0: And did somebody else pick it up and be like, "I'll I'll prosecute"?
1: No, because the state is the only entity that uh, is able to prosecute. You, there are no private prosecutors, so. There was no one to pick it up. Ultimately, it was a decision uh, for me, or I suppose the elected prosecutor could have overruled my decision in a case like that. But, um, no, there was no one to pick it up. So, you know, you're just given a lot of power as prosecutor. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was another point I wanted to go back to, to a question that you had asked or or a point that you had raised about people on both sides of of a murder trial. I can just tell you from my experience, when I prosecuted those cases, you know, in a jury trial, for instance, I, I always felt like when when I left the case, you know, the best you can hope for is that justice was done. Mm-hmm. But there were no winners today. I mean, I kind of always felt that way when a, when a trial ended. Like, nobody won today. Everybody lost. Society lost. Mm-hmm. You have someone who's going to prison. You have someone who was grievously harmed. And, you know, the the only hope that you can have out of that is that the victim their family that they they have and maybe achieved a true sense of justice that mm-hmm. that they feel like justice was done mm-hmm. but there are no winners and for me it was never you know when i finished a big trial like that it wasn't time to celebrate there was you know, I wasn't going to go out and party or celebrate because I won the trial. So
0: what is that like then? Like if you're, you know, you you think about, uh, because that is considered the win in that world, right? As far as like for you, like you don't want to lose cases. You didn't get into this being like, I hope I lose every case. Like you're like, no, I hope I win every case. But the win doesn't feel like the win. Like, you know, if you play, uh, (laughs) if you're a business guy and you seal the deal, yeah. That's going to feel like, that's a win, I can't go and get the stake or whatever, right? Or you're the yeah. baseball player, and you hit the game-winning home run or whatever. It's like, that's the win. It's a clear, and it feels celebratory. So what is that like in your world to be like, yeah, on paper I won. Right. But it doesn't feel like a win. Yeah. like How do you deal with that? Is that like something that... Well, has has that been, was that hard for you? Like something maybe you didn't even really anticipate when you went into this career or something like you already knew that was me a part of it. Is it something that's like, yeah, I'm just curious emotionally, mentally, like all that, like how you dealt with that. Yeah. I think you put all this work into it, right? Yeah. Like you right. put through your life into it and then it's like, okay, it's over. And yeah. this doesn't feel like, like you said, I'm not going to go celebrate tonight with my wife and kids, you know, yeah. whatever or kid.
1: Um, no, you make a great point because there there is a real difference between closing the deal, and you know winning a case. Uh, you know, as prosecutor in a in a very serious trial like that, it, um, you know, it's hard to really, it's hard to put it in words exactly, but, you know, I would just say that it's a much more serious and weighty thing than, than just like closing the deal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always approached it that way. There are probably people, I mean, I know there are, there are other prosecutors who probably look at it as like, yeah, I won. Um, but really it wasn't about winning as much as it was about, you know, was justice done mm-hmm. in this case? Mm-hmm. Did, did we do, was there, did we do the right thing? Did we do right by people? Was society, was society served, uh, you know, as yeah. a whole and ultimately, uh, you know that was always my mentality toward it, and but you're right. I mean, there is an aspect uh, of of it. I think where you've put so much time into it. Of course, you want to win, um, but when you're a prosecutor, it's not a win at all cost mentality. You know, at the end of the day, it's about doing the right thing, being fair, uh, ensuring that the process is followed correctly, and ensuring trying to ensure that justice is done. Um, And I think that's where prosecutors can get in trouble. If you have that win-at-all-costs mentality, that's the wrong kind of attitude to have as a prosecutor. Uh, And I think maybe one of the best qualities that a prosecutor can have is the ability to show restraint, because there's a tremendous amount of power that you have as prosecutor, and with that comes the ability to abuse that. And I think probably the biggest... Uh, or the best attribute that a person can have as prosecutor is the ability to exercise restraint because you are given tremendous power and you want to make sure that you use that appropriately and that you don't uh, abuse it in any way.
0: The only thing that even comes to my mind is like a close comparison because I'm trying to put myself in your place and think about what that must feel like is, and this is not even going to be, it's still going to be apples and oranges, but I think about those listening to this, if you're a parent and there are times where you have to discipline your kid, it's like... There's nothing about that that ever feels like, yeah, like, you know, you're arguing with your kid and you, then you convinced them they're wrong and then you had to discipline them and there's nothing that's like, got them. You know, it's like I yeah. like I don't want to even be I, – I wish this wouldn't have happened right? where you had to even be in this place where you're being disciplined or whatever else, but it's the right thing to do. And yeah. I'm, I'm seeing the greater picture here, and I know that this isn't because I feel like I just had to win – or abuse my power or whatever right. else, but I'm using the power and authority I've been given that I think is for the ultimate good right. in this situation. That's the only thing that yeah. coming out of my mind, uh, I but think on a, a much, a... much bigger scale, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, no, so. no, I think that's a great uh, great comparison. So um, tell me this, and we'll move into the, the Protect Arkansas Act. What do you think is um, – is there anything you've learned – from working in the public in the way that you have kind of uh, such as a prosecutor or as a lawyer is there anything that you've learned just about yourself about human nature about people about life anything that you look back on specifically from your perspective uh, something that's that's even maybe changed in your perspective or something that's just yeah any mental shifts or anything that you've learned that maybe you didn't know before you went into this and that's a not a softball question. That's like one of those <laughs> replies. Like, I mean, I'd have to look back and think on this for a while. But has anything come to mind? Oh
1: boy. Um, you know, I think you know from from a lot of the experiences that I had. Um, you know, all the different courts that I covered. Uh, you know, I'd be in Truman, Harrisburg, Lapanto, Mark Tyronza. I've been to court all over Northeast Arkansas, and you know, a lot of other uh, areas of the state. Even, you know, I had a lot of court in Paragould. I've been Clay County, Mississippi County, uh, Crittenden County—been all over Northeast Arkansas in court, and I think, you know, you really get a good sense of kind of where people are at. Um, You get a good sense of, of, uh, of—I don't just—you get a good sense of humanity and where people really are. Um, You know, it's not—you're not in some ivory tower, but you're—you're. This is real life. Mm -hmm. These are real people, and this is real uh you know these are real circumstances that people are dealing with and uh, you just get a good sense for how people really live now i don't want to say that uh, the criminal courts are not a good representation of the whole general public uh, yeah, uh, yeah of, of the general public but i will say that um you know i think it grounds you a bit because you get to see people in some pretty yeah. uh oh what's the best word you get to see to see people in some circumstances that aren't yeah. the best, and you see see how people really are sometimes. Yeah,
0: well, I think you see reality as what you're right. talking about. You know, like for me, I've not been in your position, but before I was a pastor, uh, I was I worked at Arkansas Counseling for five years, and uh, it dealt with DHS cases and all that kind of stuff. And what I always tell people is, I grew up in just a white middle class. Uh, lifestyle in a certain part of town and and just was never really aware of any level of brokenness of any kind other than just like you know what would happen at school every now and then a fight would break out or whatever and it's like yeah there there's a lot of great things in our city and a lot we're celebrating but then there's also like you know there's a real dark side to humanity, and there is, whether you want to call it, depends on what your stance is on life, sin or evil or whatever, just uh, dysfunction, whatever you want to call it, like that exists. And that's why it's always blown my mind of like anybody that's like defund police or any of this kind of stuff. I'm like, you clearly, to me, I'm like, you live in some sort of utopian dream. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't realize like people – all and I think and this is you know this is me as well. Like I put myself in there. Like I just had this conversation with a couple in my office yesterday. I've never once sit in with somebody and been like, I would never be capable of doing whatever this bad thing is that they've done. And I think it's because just at least my perspective is on human nature is that like there's none of us who are perfect. Like we all have flaws. We all have areas where right. we fall short. And right. I think that like. Nobody wakes up one day and is like, I don't, this is just my perspective. Nobody wakes up one day and is like, I want to be a murderer or I want to like blow up something or I want to be like a thief or I want to be like, like there's little bitty steps that happen along the way that get you to that place. Does that make sense? And I think that's inside of all of us, which is why it's just that, that some of us haven't, it's not been, cult, that, that bad part of us hasn't been cultivated as much as others. And I think that's why we will always, this side of heaven, need law you know, mm-hmm. and it's why we'll talk about this in a second. Like even the work you're doing now is so incredibly important.
1: Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think you said that really well. I, th- and I agree. I mean, I think it's easy and, and to go back to the, the previous question uh, I th- you know, it's easy to not really understand where people are or where or where people live or how they live when you've lived a pretty sheltered life. Yeah. And I probably had a similar upbringing mm-hmm. to you uh, you know, I was probably pretty sheltered. Mm-hmm. And I think my point was that, uh, you know, when I was prosecutor and I was going to all these places or just, uh, all the court that I had over the years, you really get a sense of the real world. Like I, you know, I may have had this sheltered existence, but this is the real world for sure. And, you know, I see that now in the legislature and I'm really thankful for it. I'm really thankful, um, that I had those experiences. And I don't mean this negatively toward any of, of my other legislators, uh, but you know I see some of these folks from Northwest Arkansas sometimes, and they're great friends of mine. I don't mean this bad, but I think like you've never been to Lepanto like you've never <laughs> seen some of the things that i've seen like you've been up there in Bentonville uh you know in your ivory tower, like you need to come to Lepanto the sure, criminal court and yes. hang out with me one day and see what the real world's like yes, but you know it's it's experiences like that that give you some perspective, and you know everybody has a different perspective and uh, once again, I don't mean that as a, as a criticism.
0: Yeah, no, I get you but. totally. I don't receive that at all. And I don't think anybody else would. I, it, tell me about Protect Arkansas Act. This is obviously, uh, and I'm, dude, I'm so ignorant all this stuff, but it is a, a ginormous bill um, that seems to like have accomplished a million things all in one bill. And I was just talking with uh, Sonia about this before. Um, she was just saying, you know, this is her words: like, hey, this was. This bill is pretty cutting edge. Like other states are gonna are gonna look at what we've done here, and they're gonna try to model that in their states. And you, and I guess a couple others, uh, maybe with you, y'all spearheaded this, and you made this happen. So tell me, and those listening right now, again, not the person who's who's walking their dog or whatever else, we don't know law right as well as you do. Give me kind of the layman's terms, like like why is this such an important bill? Why does the, the Protect Arkansas Act matter? Well, I think the short
1: answer is because people deserve to be safe. Um, you know, ultimately, uh, the, the, prior, the first priority of government, or maybe the first responsibility of government, is to keep its citizens safe. And, uh, you know, if government's not doing that, then it's not, it's not fulfilling an essential function. And uh, as the, I've heard the Attorney General say, if we're not safe, we're not free. Because if you can't go to the gas station at night because you're afraid you're going to get carjacked, then you're not free. Mm-hmm. If you can't go walk your dog uh, on the Eight Mile Creek Trail for fear of being robbed, then you're not free. If you can't you know, park your car at the movie theater and feel safe coming out after the sun goes down, you're not free. We don't live in a free society. Mm-hmm. And so I think the short answer is, is that Arkansans deserve to be safe. And so what we did with this bill, particularly, is we tried to focus on violent crime and uh, sexual, child sexual offenses. That's where we really kind of targeted the most serious punishments. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, the criminal justice system should make us safer. And we want to focus on the people who we're afraid of. I mean, the people who have proven that they're going to do harm to other people. And that, so we wanted to address that. Um, and then, but for nonviolent offenders, you know, we wanted to try to take a little bit different approach, you know, particularly uh, those individuals who may just uh, be addicted, have, have an addiction or have addiction issues, um, but they're not violent. They're not right. mean. They're not a threat to other people. You know, you have to ask yourself the question, I think, are, are we really serving the greater good? by locking people like that up, I mean, wouldn't we be a lot better to treat yeah, their addiction as totally, opposed 100%. to spend all the money that it takes to put somebody in jail or in prison be, just simply because they're an addict. Yeah. And so we really tried to focus on rehabilitation for nonviolent offenders and those who uh, may have drug issues. But for those who would commit murder, rape, uh, aggravated robbery, uh, you know, putting a gun in a convenience store clerk's face or uh, robbing you at gunpoint when you're trying to put gas in your car, whatever the case may be, you know, for those folks, there's really harsh penalties in the bill. Um, there's There are 18 offenses that, and really it's an overhaul of the parole system, uh, if you really want to look at it that way. Uh, but for there are 18 offenses for which there is no early release. So, you know, if, if you get 10 years, you're going to do 10 years. You're not, yeah. under the current system that we've had, uh, and, and largely it's because of lack of capacity. And I could talk a lot about that, but, and we we've also addressed the capacity issue because we've not had enough space to keep people. Cause and you're beca-
0: putting all these addicts in. That's addicts, right.
1: Yeah. So, you know, we're definitely want to get away from that and move, you know, if we're going to use incarceration, we need to use it for the people who it really needs to be used for, which is the people yeah. who, again, who are likely to do us harm that are going to commit yeah, violent crimes. It's like
0: you've got two different people. You've got those that you're, uh, who are going, you're going to be frustrated with and then those who you're going to be afraid of. It's right. Like, which one would you rather not be in your life? Clearly the ones that you're afraid of right. who present the threat. Right. That's what you're saying. You're trying to be, make sure they're in jail or in prison, whereas those who maybe, like you said, the addicts are yeah. getting treated right. with addiction.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, and I've said this, and I, I mean, I just, I stand by it. I think when it comes to drug addiction, and I mean, it's a terrible thing. I, I you know, I just hate to see it of, and I've seen it my whole career when I was prosecutor before I got into the legislature, you know, it's good people. I mean, people who are otherwise good people who for whatever reason mm-hmm. made a bad decision. I don't, you know, and it can be for any number of reasons. Maybe it was peer pressure. Maybe it was depression. Maybe it was uh boredom. Maybe it yeah, was dealing with trauma. A lot of times, man,
0: it's a ton of pain in their life I, and they're trying to just numb the pain.
1: Absolutely. As an escape yep. uh, because they're, they're dealing with something, so heavy in their life, Mm -hmm. Uh, whatever reason it may be, uh, you know, people make a decision to take uh, a drug. And what we know about those substances is they're highly addictive Mm -hmm. and it doesn't take very many times of doing that before all of a sudden somebody has become an addict for sure. And then what you have is somebody who, you know, they, they would never hurt you. They would never Mm -hmm. uh, do it. You know, they're good hearted people, but they've developed an addiction and it's just a sad thing to see because that's not they're not fulfilling their true potential. They're not 100%. they're not being the person who the, who God created them to be or who they can be. And so, but we have really have to start looking at that again my opinion. I really think we have to start looking at that as more of a public health issue than a a criminal issue and I'm not saying that, I you take, that. I'm not saying that you take away criminal penalties from those substances. I mean, clearly these are bad substances that people mm-hmm. shouldn't have. Uh, Because they're so addictive and they're so destructive, but uh, but we need to start. Again, my opinion, we need to start trying to treat people as opposed to looking at the solution for just locking people up.
0: Yeah. Um, What is the is that 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 sounds really really good, and I agree with that one hundred percent. How do you treat those people at a state level? Like, how do we, or is that like never going to be something that like the state can fund? Like, you just make sense. Like, how uh, do we move from like dream that, that happened to reality?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And you're right. I mean, you know, at the state we are dealing with limited resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, state's doing really well right now. We have a lot of yeah, surplus. But you don't have
0: unlimited supply of money. Yeah.
1: That's right. That's right. Uh, we we have a good. We have a nice surplus. We have a lot of money in a, a restricted reserve accounts and catastrophic reserve funds. And so, the state of Arkansas has money right now. But it's one of those things, you know, like you kind of do your own budget. you got to be careful. You don't want to spend it all, and then all of a sudden find yourself in desperate need of more money and not have it. So, you know, we, we are, we've been really conservative with how we budget our money, and I think that's a wise approach. But, uh, but ultimately, you know, we have to figure out the best way to address it. And if we can address, you know, drug addiction and those types of issues without spending – you know, uh, an inordinate amount of money incarcerating people. If we can address it in a cheaper way and in a more effective way, then that's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I think there are people who are dedicated to trying to do that. But money is always an issue. I mean, it always comes back to the money. Mm-hmm. When people say it's not about the money; it's about the money. Of course, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and with state government and federal government and everywhere else, ultimately, you've got to have the money to do some of these things. So,
0: yeah, yeah. These therapists and and grief counselors and people who are certified in addiction they don't they can't work for free. That's right. So they've got to be able to okay. feed uh, their families. So you're absolutely right. Tell me about the, uh, the 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 bail reform. Like, I know that's a big part of this as well. Um, and I think people that are listening would be interested in hearing that.
1: Yeah, that's a part of it. Um, you know, there there were multiple issues in the criminal justice system that had been neglected for a good period of time that we tried to address here. One particularly was the broken parole system, which I kind of mentioned earlier. You had people who were being sentenced uh, you know to 10 years 20 years 30 years who were getting out after having only served a fraction of their time and you know to the public that's it's deceiving because they read a headline in the paper that someone got 20, 30, yeah whatever yeah you know uh you know green county man gets 20 years yeah. in the department of corrections yeah, he got what he deserved yeah and and then it's like <laughs> you see him at walmart six months yeah. later it's like there he is yeah oh you know like I thought that guy got twenty yeah. years. I yeah. saw it on the, I saw it in the front page of the paper. Yeah, and you know, you have people scratching their heads, like, "What's going on?" Like, mm-hmm. I, and and that's legitimate. And so, you know, to the attorney general, he he made this point several times. Um, our current parole system is deceptive. There were a lot of crimes, for instance, under the old law, which this has changed in, with the Protect Act, but they were what you would call one sixth parole eligibility. You could get twenty years, you get a twenty year sentence and be out potentially in like three years, three and a half years. You could get a 10-year sentence and be out in a year and a half. Wow. And people read in the paper, you know, man gets 20 years, mm-hmm. man gets 10 years. And then a year later, they're him them walking the streets of Paragould mm-hmm. again. They're like, what in the world?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that that is what the Protect Arkansas Act changes. And then, you know, with regard to the bail reform, you know, what you had there is, uh, you know, judges have to set, bond in these cases. After they made a finding of probable cause, they'll set bond and uh, the, pr- the primary purpose of bond is to secure appearance at trial. Like that's really what bond is supposed to be about. It's not meant to, to punish because the person is still innocent until proven guilty. Uh, the primary purpose is just to make sure that they come back for trial. And so the judge will set a bond depending on certain circumstances and there's a list in the statute that they have to follow. The, the issue was is that and this has been going on for a long time. Judges would set bond at, say, uh, $50,000 cash or surety, which means someone can make that bond by using a bail bondsman. Well, these some of these bail bondsmen, some of the more unscrupulous ones maybe, were taking
0: $100 in a payment plan and making a $50,000 bond. How does that work? Like, explain that to me in just simple terms. Like, I don't even fully, surely understand. I, I know, like a bells, like a bail bondsman, like yeah, like they get the money and then you can get the person out of jail or whatever. Like, but I don't understand like how that really works in the legal system.
1: <laughs> well, it's, like, it's the
0: authority they have and all that. So well, like,
1: yeah, it's an interesting business for sure. But um, it, basically, when the judge sets a bond, the bail bondsman post can post that bond. And when they, when they make it in the form of a corporate surety, the, uh, the bondsman basically gives their, uh, gives their surety to the sheriff. that And they're supposed to, by depositing 10%, is what they're supposed to do, 10% of the amount of, of the bond. And what happens is if the people don't come back to court and the bondsman can't go find them and bring them back to court, then they lose the money that they had to deposit with the court. So the bail bondsman has a real incentive to make sure that they go find these people and that the people actually show up to court. That's really the purpose of the what bondsman. What do you
0: have to do to become a bondsman?
1: I'm sure there's probably uh, there's a licensing process okay. through the state or something. Right. But, you know, I mean, it, it's very much it's kind of like Dog the Bounty Hunter, if you, <laughs> <laughs> <if> you want to <laughs> get down to it. I mean, this is what a bondsman does. I mean, when somebody doesn't, they're supposed to make sure that the people who they bonded out show up for court. And if they don't show up for court, and, and I've always felt like that they really kind of, they help the system because somebody would have to go get them uh-huh. if you didn't have a, a private bondsman to do it. And the sheriff's department, for instance, doesn't have the resources to send deputies out to go find people who don't show up for court. But the bondsman has a real incentive to do that because if they don't do it, they're going to lose money. But the problem was, is in, as opposed to taking 10%, like they were supposed to do, they would take like
0: $100. Okay, so let me, tell me if I'm getting this right. So let's say I'm a bondsman. And you're an inmate, right? And the bond's been set for ten thousand, you know, like I'm supposed to get a thousand or whatever, because that's what they—that's what's been, you know, written up, whatever. And so, but I'm like, you got a thousand? Like, nope. What do you got? I can do. It. I got a buddy right here. To give you a hundred a day. I'll take it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's amazing. That's
1: exactly, and that's been uh, going on in Arkansas for years. And so, the, you know, this bill, you know, hopefully is going to put an end to that. Um, and yeah.
0: And this it just, probably needs to be an input to that. Yeah.
1: So you know that that really is probably how the system needs to operate and uh, should have been operating. And so we think we're hopeful anyway that yeah. this is going to change
0: that. How long did it take you to get this all passed? Like, how first off, how long did it take you to write it up?
1: You know, we, so I started working on this uh, several months before the legislative session began, and I, and I should you know there's a lot of people who deserve a lot of credit for this. Certainly not just me, but the Attorney General really spearheaded this. Our, our current Attorney General, Tim Griffin, uh, even before he was in office, he was talking about this. He was Lieutenant Governor at the time, but uh, before he, when he was running for Attorney General, he really started pushing a lot of these issues about reforms that needed to be made to the criminal justice justice system, and he was exactly right. And he reached out to me, asked me if I would be interested in working on it. And he had Sen- a Senator, Ben Gilmore from I uh, I think he had reached out to him and he and I started having regular meetings with uh with Tim, who's now the Attorney General. He wasn't the attorney general at the time, but we were having regular meetings with him, going over changes that we thought needed to be made and how, you know, uh, how we would implement that. And ultimately, I mean, you know, Tim is a really energetic guy, he's a really smart guy, and he had a, a huge whiteboard in his office. He'd just get out the markers and he'd start, you know, marking like, all right. We're going to do, what about this issue? So this is how we're going to do it. And so he had this whiteboard that we mm. created in his office that had, you know, all this, all these markers, uh, uh, all these terms on it, and all these little notes that he scribbled everywhere all over it. And that's really what we used as the template to write the bill. But, wow. you know, that ultimately that's turned. That's how it gets going. That's, that's how it worked. And, you know, ultimately it turned into a 131-page bill. <laughs> uh, the governor got on board with it. The governor agreed that uh, this was a reform that needed to be made. So she made it part of her kind of legislative package. She had four bills that she really wanted passed this past legislative session. One was the Learns Act, mm-hmm. which uh, made a lot of changes in education. Some some people are happy about yeah. Some people are not happy about yeah. I mean, I'm
0: it, happy about it because my wife's starting to uh, <laughs> teach English this year, for uh, first year.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. Probably very happy about it. Uh, you know, there's a uh, lot of reform in that bill, and – then there was the Protect Arkansas Act, which was kind of her second priority, where there's a lot of reform to the criminal justice system. Then there was the tax cut, and then there was an initiative about uh, kind of promoting the outdoors in Arkansas, mm-hmm. uh, state parks and things of that nature. So she had really four legislative priorities, and she adopted this as one of them. That's very cool. That so, had to make you feel good. Yeah, so that was that was good. And so I got to interact with her and uh, her staff a lot and worked, of course, very closely with the Attorney General, so... But it was uh, you know, it's probably at least nine months before the legislative session that we spent working on that uh, pretty regularly.
0: Wow. Well, well done, man. I mean, it sounds like it's uh, really going to serve the citizens of our state and a lot of other states that are following suit. So thank you for all of your hard work, your passion, and energy that you put into that. All right, well, I know there's so much more we could talk about, but I'd love to move into some rapid-fire questions. You ready for it? <laughs> uh, we'll see. All right, here we go. <laughs> You are on the stand now. Is that the right <laughs> no, the um, What is the last show or movie you watched? Um, and if you're not a movie watcher, show watch what's the last book you read? Uh, well,
1: the last thing that I remember watching, I guess recently, I sat down and watched the Civil War documentary. Uh, Ken Burns? Ken Burns documentary. Yeah, that's a good one. Which I love. I bought it, but from time to time, I just sit down and watch it. And uh and I, I did that, I guess, I don't know, about a week ago. I just watched, watched the whole thing.
0: Is that your, uh, your history guys, that's your favorite war to go back and study?
1: I mean, yeah, absolutely. I find it absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, the way that it shaped the country, um, you know, the effect that it, that it had, uh, to this present or that, that it had and has to this present day on the way that it's, uh, the impacts that it's had on the country. Yeah, absolutely. I find it fascinating, um. I mean, obviously, the Revolutionary War is, you know, is important. And I love World War II. Um, I don't, you know, I haven't studied World War One as much as have World War II. was fortunate to get to go on a trip um, through Greene County Tech with the Pace program. We went to Europe on a World War II trip and spent kind of two weeks going to a lot of World War II oh, wow. sites. Cool. And that was a treat. I love that. But uh, but I think probably the Civil War is the most uh, has had the most profound effect on our country of of any. Yeah. that
0: we've been involved in. Hard to argue against that. Here's one. that's going to be uh, probably difficult for a music guy. What is your favorite band?
1: <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, well, if I if I told you, you know. It's one of those bands that people like to make fun of, but I'm a huge Coldplay fan. Oh. Yeah. Who
0: makes fun of Coldplay? I
1: don't know. I just, I've heard people make fun of it. So when I've told is that these to, the
0: people that are like, because they're mainstream and whatever else? Is that what they're making fun of? I, I mean, guess.
1: Like, I, you know, I don't know. I've told some other people that, and I think they kind of snickered at me before.
0: So it's like, I'm almost hmm. ashamed to admit that. No, but, dude. You won't get any snickering from me. I'm not like a huge Coldplay fan, but not because it's like, for some reason, and I wish I was, because they're... Very, very good musicians. I can't get into a lot of their stuff, but I uh, watched a YouTube clip of them where recently they uh, had a show and they brought the lead singer from um, The Verve up to sing Bittersweet Symphony huh. uh, live, which is like probably one of my top five songs of all time. Uh, yeah.
1: They didn't I think make, it's a
0: 90s song. It, it is, and they didn't make song. any money off of it because they took a sample from a Rolling Stones song from like the 70s without getting all the, I don't know, proper, I guess, I don't know, whatever, they didn't do all the right legal stuff, Oh, whatever wow. that is. And so, yeah, whoever the, the, the guy who represented the Rolling Stones, they, the the Verve just started getting money off of Bittersweet Symphony as of last year. Oh, wow. Interesting. But at this point, Rolling Stones made all the money off of it. Wow. Mm-hmm. Pretty crazy, and it's like a phenomenal song. Yeah. uh, Coldplay, very good. What's your favorite Coldplay song? You got one? I don't know. So many. I I don't know. Hard to say. What's your favorite meal? I'm going to start asking people, what would you eat for your last meal? Final meal. Is that a a better question? That's a better question. It's your final meal. You're on death row. You're on (laughs) death row. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, This is a good one to start with. Um, What are you going to eat? Tell me about it. This could be appetizers. This could be main dish. It can be dessert, drink, all of that. Like, What are you going to do? Where are you going to start with? Oh my What's the gosh. first thing you want me to bring you? Oh gosh, I don't know. Um, it's a really hard question, well, right? You
1: know, I mean, I guess, I mean, I steak guy, so I, I mean, I like. You're going to start with a steak? I, I don't know. I'd start with a steak, but I mean, at some point, I'm pro- I'd probably have some steak fillet, ribeye, uh, probably fillet.
0: Okay, all right. What do you want with it?
1: You know, I, I so we've we've gotten into going to the farmer's market mm-hmm. and so you know as, as when i was younger i was never into vegetables like you know i just I was like a meat and cheese only guy like sure. don't give me any of those vegetables don't give me a salad i'm not sure gonna eat that yeah but i've really i've really gotten into the uh fresh vegetables that we get at the farmer's market so, uh, so i want, good some, vegetable medley I'd want some, a good vegetable medley i'd probably want some steak uh you know but i i love breakfast too so i don't know maybe some eggs Ooh, there
0: you go oh yeah man some steak and eggs
1: <laughs> that's, an that. that's
0: an interesting combo but yeah <laughs> i think it'd be a good one you can get at the waffle house <clears throat> i can take you there right now we get some <laughs> eggs what are you gonna do for dessert uh cheesecake very good um you do just traditional cheesecake or you got something mixed in it
1: No, now i like the traditional cheesecake but you know throw a couple of cherries on there
0: that's nothing wrong with that what are you gonna <laughs> are you what are you gonna drink with it are you like a water wine soda like you get your last meal Well, if it were my last meal,
1: probably get some water and a Dr. Pepper.
0: There you go. Very good. It's great. It's very good that you did good on that because usually we just ask what's your favorite meal and people get off pretty easy. They're like, ah, oh, grandma's biscuits and gravy. <laughs> you know, like it's one thing and we move on to the next. I had to deal.
1: go to final meal to me. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Final so, meal.
0: I asked my wife that question last night because I asked like six people. You were there at the deal and it's yeah. it's really hard. My wife went on and on and on about hers and then she was like, oh, my birthday's coming up. Like you could do that for my birthday. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm in trouble. <laughs> uh, it's a trap. What's yeah, it is. What's on your nightstand right now?
1: on my nightstand. Uh there's a phone charger. Um I think there's a hedge clipper that I've used to trim the hedges with recently. that For that some reason came in in my pocket right. and got put on my <laughs> nightstand. Um probably some receipts. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Not well, anything. You'd be a great consequence.
0: landscape guy if you ever try to get out of the law world or the political world.
1: But you know, people ask me they're like, "What do you do in your spare time?" I'm like, "Work on my yard." Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm sure it's a stressfully real I'm the same way, man. So I enjoy mowing. I can see results quickly. Yeah, right. So, um give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you great joy. Um probably seeing my daughter
1: smile, seeing her happy. Um yeah. I don't is there any greater joy for a parent than to know that your child is happy?
0: No. No. Even if they don't believe it sometimes, it's like, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Well, she's
1: a teenager now, so I'm going through all oh, that. Oh, wow.
0: So, How old is she? 14. Just what crazy. grade is she going to be in next year? She'll be in ninth. See, my wife's a ninth grade English teacher at Tech now. Oh, she may have her for class. Uh, maybe. Sure we'll find out. Yeah. Last question. What is one thing you're deeply grateful for right now? Uh, I, I'm So
1: many things. I mean, it'd be hard to pick one. Uh, I'm grateful to be alive, to have the opportunities that I have for my family, for, um, you know, the ability to make a difference. Um, you know, I've just, I've just been given so much and I'm grateful for so many things. It would, it would be impossible to pick one, I think, but just so many things.
0: Good. Well, Thanks so much for coming on. I'd love to be able to hang out with you sometime. off mic. we can grab some steak and eggs. (laughs) We can talk about Zoysia Crafts, Bermuda, whatever (laughs) your your favorite trimmer. This
1: all sounds right up my alley. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's awesome, man. Well, thanks, Jimmy. Keep up the great work, man. Okay, thanks a lot. All right, Jimmy Gazaway has left the building. Um, You know, in a world where we do have obviously a lot of corruption in politics on all sides, right? I think it's very easy to become cynical and be like, well, everybody in politics is just kind of after their own selfish agenda or out for their own personal gain or to make money or to get their own power. It's really good to be able to sit with an actual politician right here in our community who, because of the position he's in, has made our state better. Absolutely. Put in a lot of work and effort to do so. Yeah. Um, great guy. Yeah. He was a great neighbor when he was my neighbor. I can tell you. it's Well, his, his yard was certainly better than yours he mowed mine one time I was on a vacation dude how about that yeah he came over and mowed my yard caught him on the ring camera look at that man what a ah. guy um, Jimmy thanks so much for coming in for those of you who are still listening thanks so much for tuning in truly we are glad that you uh, have listened to today's podcast if you've not done so please check us out on our different social media platforms we're on Instagram we're on Facebook primarily uh, go follow us there give us a like and Whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, if it's Apple, Spotify, whatever it is, please give us a five-star rating. Uh, That'll just help people to find us more quickly and learn about the incredible people that are living right here in our city. So as always, thanks for listening. Until next time.